Hello, and welcome to Off the Cuff. I am your host, Chris Martinson, and on this program, every week, we are going to bring you a fascinating guest, where we are going to discuss the economy, energy, or the environment, informally and without a script. Welcome, Mish. You know, big news today, I guess, uh, of course, GDP came in. It, well, it, it fell. It, it went into negative territory. And let me see, I'm checking my Bloomberg estimates from economists, and how many of them predicted that? Uh, zero. That would have been zero people expected this. So this is called an unexpected plunge in uh, GDP. But I think there's some pretty interesting stuff in the data. Notably, there's some pretty awesome reversals from third quarter data, which I don't know if it smells exactly fishy, but uh, it's not quite kosher, I don't think. What, do you, what are you looking at there? Let's take a look at the numbers. I've got them up here on my screen right now. I was just getting ready to do a blog post on this. It'll, it'll come out later this evening. I'm looking at national de defense spending. Let's look at 2012. Quarter one was negative 7.1. Quarter two was negative 0.2. Quarter three, ding, 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 plus 12.9. And quarter four, minus 22.2%. <laughs> and let's look at federal, because this is like government, you know, workers and paychecks. Yeah, I know. Uh, you know, governments, you know, military spending, okay, maybe. But what about government paychecks? Uh, first quarter federal down uh, annualized 4.2, second quarter down 0.2, third quarter ding, 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 plus 9.5, and fourth quarter minus 15. Ugh, um, not possible. You know, those third quarter rises were just in time for the election, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say? Oh, isn't that an interesting... Well, that's a coincidence, of course. I'm, I'm sure it is. Now, now, actually, there's a reasonable case that some of this might be due to yeah. uh, uh, tax changes coming on, you know, this quarter, uh, uh, first quarter of, of 2013, some fiscal changes bringing demand forward. But... <laughs> yeah. But... Yeah, and here's the thing. The other thing that bounces around like crazy in these uh, GDP reports is the deflator. And it completely reversed its sign, you know, between last time, third quarter, and this time. And and some would argue that the deflator was actually too high this time. And, and so honestly, I look at the deflator when I want to understand very simply what the fudging is that's going on in the GDP report. They just fudge with the deflator because I think honestly they, they pretty do a pretty good job of, of assembling and gathering all the rest of the data and there's like 60,000 people gathering all sorts of data and every measure and corner of our, of our economy. That's great. But when they need to reverse a prior goosage, what do they do? They just bump this deflator. It bounces around like crazy as if we're to expect that inflation is suddenly negative one quarter, positive the next. It's it's plus 2%, 1%. It's just bouncing all over the place as if from quarter to quarter, prices gyrated like that across an entire economy. It's not possible for that to be true. I, I would agree with you. This deflator is some of the stuff that pulls people hair out. And most people believe, me included, that it's actually understated here, and uh, which actually brings into mind a, another topic here. Uh, I received an email yesterday, someone asking me with home prices rising, how that actually affected my view of price inflation. So I uh, got the data from LPS. They don't publish this normally. 
but they were kind enough to send annualized data going all the way back to 1994. Mm-hmm. I got the data, and I uh, sent it to Doug Short at Advisor Perspective and asked him you know, if he could draw up some charts, and I told him what I wanted. And it really shows the Fed-sponsored housing bubble exactly what happened in uh, the mid-2000s, where you know, home prices were going up like mad. Owner's equivalent rent, which is in the CPI, was benign. Mm-hmm. And so the Fed, you know, seriously misunderstood, misrepresented, misbelieved, call it whatever, you know, term you want, what was really happening with with inflation. And right now, if one wants to, you know, track price inflation, I believe they're understating it, it it's still. And, and I'm quite certain you would say the same thing. Well, now understating it because, well, well first of all, so, so housing was going up at a huge amount, especially to its run up in its peak at 2006, seven, somewhere in that zone. But owner's equivalent rent, if I remember it right, was just sort of this gentle line that trundles along at a very predictable sort of a pace. And, and so clearly, owner's equivalent rent needs to track the rental markets somehow. So we're, we're led to believe that houses can go up extraordinarily in price, you know, rising 100% in a rents will trundle along at some predictable inflation friendly sort of a zone. And, and so your argument, what are you saying with this that that because uh, house prices are trundling back up again, that this ought to factor into CPI somehow? I believe it should. I think that was one of the big misses made by the uh, Fed in, you know, they just completely ignored this. I mean, here's the question. I don't know if you're aware of this, that the BLS asks you when determining, you know, what the rent is. They ask people what they would pay for rent if they rented their house from themselves. Seriously, that is that is the question. Now, that's not the only determinant. They do two things. They actually, they, they check actual rental prices but uh, for one component and for another component, they ask people what it would cost for people to, you know, rent their house. Well, and if they went and talked to my mom, I don't think she's rented a house since 1958. So. Well, they ask people what they would pay to rent their house from uh-huh. themselves. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> that That is the question. And, you know, is that really a valid representation? Heck, are, is even rent a valid representation? One of the things that we commented on during the bubble was how out of line home prices were in relationship to rent and how out of line home prices were in relationship with wages. They were going up three and four standard deviations above norm in uh, uh, versus wages and versus rental prices. And the Fed could not even see, or some people claim the Fed saw it and ignored it, a this bubble, you know, building up in housing. Well, let's and, talk. One thing I have to question then, because this is this has actually come up on my site recently, and it's an important important question. So, housing is it recovering? Right, we see this in the newspaper all the time. Every time there's some seasonally adjusted uptick in new home or existing home sales or pending uh, mortgage applications or whatever, the rebound is here. But what's the fuel? Remember. You don't have to have a super long-term memory to get this right. What was the fuel that really led that bubble from 98, particularly kicked off in around 2001, and then really took off in 2003? 
What was it? Well, it was low interest rates that created this really loose lending environment. We hadn't been burned by a housing bubble. So banks were doing, you know, if you could fog a mirror loans and ninja loans and all the other stuff that we now know about that nobody's been punished for. And so, but here's my question, because you mentioned the magic word to me, which is incomes. It always has to come down to jobs. If you want to know the relationship between jobs and houses, go to Detroit, open your eyes, take a peek. No jobs. Houses are what, 7,500 bucks or something? It's just crazy, right? So what's the fuel, Mish? I'm really interested in this. Have lending standards relaxed? Have incomes really increased? What is it that's going to reignite this housing bubble? What it, I, all, it just drives me nuts, I guess, because I read newspaper reports where they talk about it as if it's like gravity. It, oh, gravity's returned. Of course it should. It's a, it's a natural thing. It, but I don't understand why houses should be expected to rise so steeply at all at this point if inflation is tame and incomes are tame, and lending standards are tight. What am I missing? Well, they're only rising in huge degrees in certain places, and actually they're rising the most where the crashes were the biggest. And that's places like Phoenix, probably mm -hmm. certain places in Florida, and if I understand things correctly, I'm yep. not positive on this, I'm going to say Las Vegas. But nationally, home prices are up uh, of something like five point something, depending upon... Um, whether you believe the uh, HPI or you believe Case Schiller. They're both up about 5%, uh, uh, roughly annual. I don't doubt that, but, but why? I, I think you know why. You're asking me a, a, a question that I know you know the answer to. Negative interest rates, uh, real interest rates. It's not just nominal. You just can't just say, oh, you know, the, the Fed funds rates at 1%, because at times uh, a few years back, Fed funds rate was at 1%, but housing prices were falling so fast. And that was actually a positive rate, at least by my measure, uh, um, uh, reflecting housing prices in the CPI. But now I'm looking in this and I'm saying, hmm, you know, rates are, real interest rates are negative to the tune of about 3%. So is it, you know, surprising here that uh, home price is going up? No, it's actually reflecting the fact that real interest rates are negative. I'm looking here now at, at some charts here on, on Doug Short, and he computed the GDP three different ways, with the GDP deflator used by the Fed, and it comes in at negative 0.14%. That's what was reported today. Mm -hmm. If you use the PCE deflator, it comes in at negative 077 Mm -hmm. And if you use the CPI, it comes in at negative 1.56. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? You can tack on, if you use my preferred measure, which is the HPI, you know, CPI adjusted for, for home prices, real GDP is probably something, I'll have them produce the chart. I'm going to make this up off the top of my head, but I'm going to bet real GDP is probably on the order of negative 2%. Hmm. And in, and with the tax increases, is that likely to get better or stay the same or get worse? <laughs> oh, that's an interesting question here. Um, you, you know the answer to that. So all these people that are believe that this is uh, transitory, and didn't they? I, I believe the Fed came out today and in their FOMC statement said that whatever effects we're seeing here are transitory. 
I'm no, wondering, uh, transitory which way? I know? love transitory because last time I remember that was Greenspan saying oil was uh, transitory at 40 bucks a barrel. And he was right. It transited right past 40 and never looked back. <laughs> he was absolutely nailed that one. But I don't think that's what he meant. And so here's a question then. I'm a big believer that when QE opens the monetary spigots that owning real assets is the right thing to do, whether that's gold, silver, farmland, water, real assets, right? Productive land. What about real estate? So, I, you know, you can get a 15-year mortgage now somewhere between 2 and 3%, depending on your terms. Uh, call it under 3 safely. Is that a good deal right now? Well, it's a good deal if you've got a steady job. It's a good deal if you're not living beyond your means. It's a good deal if you really want a house and all the upkeep and maintenance that goes with it. I mean, let's be honest here. I like having my own house, so I have a house. But it's a good deal only if you meet those other conditions. You're not living beyond your means. You've got a steady job. You're not going to lose your job, all those other things. So I don't think it's a good deal for a lot of people that have houses and it's not a good deal for a lot of people who don't have houses and think they want one. So, you know, those are the thing, those are the questions that people really need to ask themselves, and that's how I would look at it. It's a good deal. For some people, yes. For many people, no. It's a horrid deal. I'll tell you, I'm perfectly happy owning a home here. I'm not sure if I would be quite as happy, you know, uh, say in the Bay Area or of California or, or other places where, uh, median incomes and average house prices are still separated by a really wide margin. There, there are places where uh, the housing bubble, you know, never really fully corrected. And there's places if we just scoot north of the border where it never corrected at all. I got to tell you, I look at the Canadian stuff and I, I, I curl my toes when I look at some of their data. It's incredible. So I, I'm of the opinion that uh, our friends north of the border have an incredible housing bubble that's been fomenting even longer and possibly even more egregiously than the U.S. housing bubble went. I was actually shocked by that. Um, when the U.S. started to correct and then Canada started to correct with it, I thought this is it. The Canadian bubble is going to pop. I thought the same thing in Australia, but both bubbles went on for a long, long time. Australia burst, I'm going to guess about a year and a half ago, you know, from memory, and it's not fallen a lot but yet, but it will sales volumes are, you know, way, way down, 50% down in, in, in some places. Uh, that's just going to put phenomenal pressure on prices. We're still not seeing price declines of any magnitude in Canada, but we're now seeing sales volumes fall off a cliff in some areas, especially Toronto, if I understand things correctly. So in Vancouver too. Price is price is going to follow here and the, the bust in Canada and the bust in Australia are going to be far bigger than the central banks in those countries realize. And, and I'll, again, you know, say that you know, all real estate is local. So in this sense, uh, Alberta, so with Calgary, Edmonton, uh, you know, given everything they've got going on there with the oil story and tar sands, all that, I, I think that will probably be immune for quite a while, just as North Dakota has been. However, uh, the coast, uh, Vancouver, and also what we're seeing in Toronto, those areas, yeah, there's just, they got hyper extended there. And of course, you know, there's stories to support all of it. But my experience has been that when you have an extraordinary run up in prices, when you have things like we saw on the internet where, where they, they had this guessing game, is it a crack shack or is it a million dollar home in Vancouver? And I got it wrong at least half the time. You know, by the, so by the time you're playing that game and you can't get it right, 
That's your first sign. Your second sign is the volume noses over and volumes really fall. And then, of course, you get all of the people who are believers in the story coming out and explaining why that's not a problem. And then prices begin to tick down and then they really go down in earnest. And it takes a while to figure out, you know, where the cards really uh, are going to settle on the table. But the, it's it's I haven't. Have you seen it differently? Have you seen sales really fall off? And then they just sort of magically recovered and everything keeps going. I haven't seen it. It doesn't any. happen that way. In the United States, it was a lights out affair. And I, and I remember it because I was blogging on it at the time where people were lining up in Florida, entering lotteries for the right to purchase a condominium. And prices were going up every day. We went from that to, to no line, like in a matter of a week. It was just literally, you know, and that marked the peak of the bubble. A lot of people think that the bubble peaked in 2006. Maybe it did in some areas, maybe even later in some areas. But nationally, I think it was summer of 2005, and that's when the condo market burst, whole sentiment. And then we started seeing things like kickbacks, you know, free three-car garages, free swimming pools, free landscaping, free trip to wherever you want. In some cases, we even saw a free car. You know, buy this house, we'll throw in a free car. All of that was not reflected in the, quote, official price of the house. So that's where Case Shiller and HPI, you know, both in my estimation got these things wrong. And, and also there was a lot of fraud beginning to happen there. Um, we'll give you cash back at sale, you know, underneath the table for you to do whatever you want to fix up the house just to get this sale done. That was not reflected in the official price. So official prices were overstated uh, starting in 2005 and, and continuing for another year. And then the prices just absolutely collapsed after that. So when they show the peak of 2006, I think they're wrong. I don't know. It's kind of a moot point here at, at, at this point. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the charts that I put up there on my blog about, you know, real interest rates and, and how negative they actually got, it marked the exact peak of the, the housing bubble. And the weird thing is, I don't know about weird, but you and I could see things like this, and the average economist couldn't. <laughs> well, you know, the Fed minutes that were released, what was it, last week? Those really amused me because, you know, even in 2007, the Fed was completely clueless about all of this stuff. Completely. You know, Bernanke was like, oh, I, I think it's kind of limited and yada, yada. You know, just conventional sort of mainstream kind of thinking. And yet here we are supposed to believe that when we're on the bleeding edge of monetary policy, these cats know exactly what they're doing. Full faith yeah. in the captain on this one. And I'm just like, really? These guys had no clue about something as obvious as the housing bubble. And now they're supposed to skate the perfect knife edge with monetary policy and territory that's never been explored. Good luck with that one. That's what I Exactly. Think. And the words for today, don't worry, Chris, it's transitory. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we're going to have to close this transitory uh, podcast down. It's been uh, great talking to you again, Mish. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Look forward to catching you again next week and look forward to catching everyone in Sonoma on April 5th. April 5th. I can't wait. Looking forward to that. All right. Thanks, Mish. Okay.